When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. to the top. He is an absolute legend of the game. This is your Football Life with Rex Hunt for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. And uh, g'day everyone and thanks for joining us and today we're celebrating the life of an absolute star. This bloke is a machine, a goal-kicking machine, a successful businessman in finance and a fearless bookmaker at the track. He played 80 games for the Swan Districts across the Nullarbor. He played 154 games and kicked 575 majors for Footscray between 1982 and 89. He's the Coleman medalist of 1985. People say, oh, he's a former Coleman medalist. Well, that's horse droppings. He is the Coleman medalist of 1985. Full forward in Footscray's team of the century. My goodness gracious me, that covers some great players. Footscray's leading goal kicker from 1982, cop this, to 1988, and has kicked more goals than any other in the VFL in the 1980s. I reckon I'm about 400 behind him. Simon Beasley, welcome to This Is Your Football Life. Good on you, Rex. Uh, nice to be on, mate. Well, good on you for making yourself available because this is a good story. Tell us about your life as a kid across the Nullarbor where you started to get the interest of local scouts. Were you always a good junior footballer? No, not really. I sort of struggled at school with footy a bit, Rex. I was a better cricketer than a footballer. Um, fortunate, I went to a, uh, a grammar school in uh, in Perth, Guildford Grammar School, uh, in the Swan Swan Districts area, and um, I was born there and uh, lived in Guildford, and um, I sort of struggled a bit with the footy, and it wasn't really until I went to uh, university where I was studying for a commerce degree, which I got really interested in it, and I got invited down to the uh, the university footy club uh, that they were playing in the A-grade amateurs, and uh, my sort of career took off from there. Were you always a dead-eye dick in relation to uh, converting your opportunities as majors? Yeah, look, I, I sort of, as a kid growing up, my brother and I used to kick the footy non-stop. So, you know, out, we'd be at outdoor activities all the time during the footy season, kick, 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 and we'd handle a ball. And, you know, we had a big tennis court we used to kick from end to end, and we had these goals set up, and, and we just sort of practised and practised. And, you know, when I got involved at an amateur level and involved at a senior level, it sort of came, it was secondary to me. In those particular days, as a young kid at university studying commerce, uh, there were three major uh, leagues in AFL or in VFL football. There was the VFL, the Sandful, and the Waffle. A pretty fair, uh, a pretty fair standard. The Waffle, uh, together with the Sandful, in those days, because 
some great players came across the Nullarbor and across from South Australia to Melbourne, and they used to put them all in the big V side and belt you blokes to the Scheisenhausen. Yeah, no, exactly. Oh, look, it was we all follow. Well, I mean, the Waffle was a big competition, an eight, eight-teamed competition in Western Australia, but we certainly followed the fortunes of um, the VFL, which is the major competition in, in the country. The the players um, in Western Australia who were able to be attracted to Victoria, that uh, everyone obviously wanted to come over to play in the VFL if you got the opportunity. Um, but certainly um, the Waffle was a very strong competition in its own right in the, in, in the 70s. The voice is Simon Beasley. He is the star today of This Is Your Football Life for Tobin Brothers. And what a career, both on and off the field, it has been for the goal kicker from the Western Oval. We'll get to the Western Oval for a minute. Uh, talk about, uh, you know, the four years you spent at uh, Swan Districts, but then fielding some inquiries from across the Nullarbor which highlighted in uh, you kicking six majors in Western Australia's defeat of Victoria in a state match, and that was really the start of it all. Yep, it certainly was. In uh, 1981, I won the Simpson medal there for the best player on the ground, kick six against the Vicks, and um, we uh, were great interstate rivalry between Western Australia and Victoria. And, um, and you know, we, the, 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 uh, the team was that we were coached by Mal Brown, and um, we had we had a great uh, a great a great number of champions in that team. Um, um, South Fremantle uh, provide, which is Mal's team that he coached in the Waffle, provided Stephen Michael and blokes like Benny Vagona, uh, Basil Campbell. We had Mike Richardson, Jared Neesham. We had some terrific players. So uh, we uh, we beat the Vicks, and then the opportunities came to come to Victoria. The, the Bulldogs, the Western Bulldogs, um, came onto the scene. Uh, Footscray, of course, it was uh, in yeah. the eighties, and Footscray came onto the scene, and um, I was ready to move east at the end of eighty one. A lot of people who know you personally would think with your business background that you would be more at home at the MCG with the Mount Buller snow set at the Melbourne Cricket and Football Club. But you turned up at the Western Oval in a pinstripe suit and your Florsheim shoes and the other blokes walked in in their King G's and their gumboots. A little bit of a contrast, my dear friend Simon. Yeah, no, look, I'd spoken to quite a few of the um, the VFL-based clubs in the late 70s when, when I'd, 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 I'd sort of um, played in an amateur carnival in Adelaide and I attracted the attention of a few of the VFL clubs at that stage, I spoke to Geelong, I spoke to Melbourne, uh, St Kilda, I spoke to Carlton. Um, but yeah, you, you you may have thought that, but the reality was I wasn't actually ready to come over. But when I was, Footscray approached at the right time and uh, didn't know a lot about the club, but um, certainly um, blended in pretty quickly. I just want to ask you a question and preface the question with the fact that a lot of the times the absolute superstars of the competition don't go on to make good coaches. Enter Royce Hart, one of the most celebrated uh, premiership stars of the Richmond Football Club, of where I was part of that era in a small way. He came to Footscray, and my goodness me, he started off slowly, then he completely slackened off. Yeah, look, he's, um, I only got Royce for the first half a dozen games, I think it was, in 1982. So I arrived for pre-season training in, in November 1981, and um, Royce was a great one for me to sort of take uh, tuition from you know his career was a celebrated career he was a an iconic forward player for the Richmond Football Club and you know look I, I look we, the Bulldogs to be truthful Rex we were struggling and uh, we, we just didn't have the firepower unfortunately at that stage and um, Roy struggled with the whole situation and he was terminated after about a month or so into the 1982 season. And replaced by a former teammate of mine at Geelong, Bluey Hamsire, the gentle giant. How yeah. did you find him? Yeah, Bluey was great. Yeah, Bluey. He was a plumber by trade, and um, he was a, he's a real stalwart, uh, having played at both um, down at uh, Catland and uh, and with Footscray. But uh, he was a he was a he was a terrific bloke, Bluey, and uh, he stood up, you know, to the challenge. I mean, he was there for the uh, the second. You know, 
basically the major part of 1982 and then 1983. So he was good for yeah. the club and uh, he sort of steadied the ship um, to encourage the blokes to an extent that we actually became quite competitive. We won three or four games latter half in 1982 and uh, we became a competitive combination. Enter Michael Malthouse, uh, back pocket premiership player for Richmond, former uh, bits and parts player at St Kilda. Next year will become the most decorated coach in the history of the game. Tell us about Malthouse arriving at Western Oval and the influence he had on you as a person and a player and, more importantly, on the entire club. Well, Malthouse was exactly what the Bulldogs needed at that stage, Rex. Um, we, uh, we, we, we finished with a, a reasonable number of wins in, um, in 1983. The club uh, wanted to, uh, to get a, a new coach. They'd spoken to Blue Hampshire about that, approached Malthouse. So Michael came across together with Wayne Walsh from Richmond and um, and brought in a, um, a a sort of a a broom into Footscray. A lot of the older guys retired. Uh, we had an influx of talent into the um, into the club. Um, we got blokes who came uh, like sort of Brad Hardy came from Western Australia. Andrew Purser came over from East Fremantle. We got pl- Emmett Dunn came from Richmond. Neil Peart came from Richmond. We got blokes like Mark Kellett. We had a lot of new players come in, and sort of that gave us hope. I thought we were pretty competitive in 1983, but with the new players coming in, that really did give us hope. And Malthouse was exactly the influence that we needed there in terms of his, um, you know, his strictness and the way he went about his football. This particular segment, this is your football lifestyle, Simon. I was critical of many people going to the big football ground in the sky and were not actually celebrating their life. But don't get me wrong, I don't think uh, Mary has to prepare for a funeral yet, mate, but I just have to give a message on behalf of our wonderful uh, supporters in Tobin Brothers. And attending a funeral at any one of Tobin Brothers' 21 chapels is now just a phone call away. Those unable to be at a funeral in person for reasons of illness, cost or tyranny of distance can still be there in voice by recording a telephone tribute to the, to the day before the service. For more information, go to tobinbrothers.com.au. Simon Beasley is our man. And, of course, it's folklore now. And uh, most grand final eves or when we've got the footy flashbacks, we have Gubby Allen, who uh, must have owed you a few, Bob, because he passed the ball beautifully. And that's now folklore that you kicked a winning goal against Collingwood in 84. Take us through it again, because you probably couldn't believe your eyes as the ball sailed towards your phalanges. Yeah, it was, it was a, a game in the second half of the season that out, out at the, uh, the Western Oval. Um, Collingwood had sort of had the wood on us a bit um, during the course of the game. Um, they were sort of three or four goals up going into the final quarter. We were kicking towards the Geelong Road end, um, we had, uh, it was a very, very fluky win that day and um, we'd been up and down, we'd been struggling a bit but Mick said to us at three-quarter time, just keep at them, I think we're a chance of um, nailing them and uh, we worked our way back into the contest in the final quarter and uh, in the last minute um, he was awarded a free kick deep in that final quarter, Graham Allen and um, I would have thought that he was just going to kick it along the boundary line to the advantage of his uh, players but he, I was playing on Greg Phillips who was backing away from me at the top of the goal square and... and um, and Gubby decided to try and kick it across, cross ground. Very dangerous move because of the because of the fluky wind. The ball sort of held up a bit. I managed to sort of double back and um and and sort of pluck the mark and then kick the goal and <laughs> won the game. So I was pretty surprised. He sort of he, he went he went with it at that stage, but it was one of those things. And we nailed them in the last the last thirty seconds, and it was very pleasant. Well, it was a magnificent era that Malthouse uh, then uh, took the club on a great journey, uh, you know, winning as many as you lost uh, in the first year in 84. But 85 was a real uh, standout year. 16-6 was a win-loss ratio 
and uh, you actually won a final, and you brought up your 100th goal that year. It must have been a great memory, that 1985 season. Yeah, no, it was a terrific year for the club. Um, I mean, we had Doug Hawkins flying. He was, you know, the most brilliant player in the competition. Hawkins, my best footballer I ever played with or wow. saw. Um, he was just, just, just sensational. Um, we had, uh, you know, we, we had players on all lines. You know, Brad Hardy, of course, won the Brownlow medal that year. Uh, Rick Kennedy led the back line store with Neil Peart was a terrific player for us. We had good players in all lines. Jimmy Sewell from Eastern Mantle, he was a very, very good player. I Les- Choco Royal. Choco there, Royal. We had Choco yeah. Royal, Stevie Wallace, Lizzie yeah. Bam- Lizzie Bambert came over from Melbourne. He was another one. Alan Daniels. We had a real real team of goers. And um, no, it was a very, very good year. You're, you're, you're spot on there. And Malthouse's influence was paramount. And a thing that we might not see much of anymore because of the way the game's played and the fact that you were a standout was that you kicked your 100th goal uh, in a final against North Melbourne. What a great memory it was. It kicked seven for the match uh, the next week. But what a season it was for you, goal kicking. Yeah, no, look, I mean, uh, I got I got a lot of opportunities. Um, you know, Mick, Mick was very keen on, you know, the, getting the ball around the centre and moving it quickly into the forward line and giving an opportunity. You know, when you're one out against the fullback, you're always a good chance of uh, and getting a result. And, you know, we had some very good kicks of the football, none better than Hawkins and the team. Um, but we, we, we kicked the ball long and, and straight and we we posed problems for the, for the other top teams being Essendon and Hawthorne. Um, Essendon was one club that we did handle very well that year. We just couldn't quite get over Hawthorne in that uh, in that uh, final preliminary, preliminary final Um so, look, it was a very solid year for us, Rex. Uh, Mick did a brilliant job. Wayne Walsh, who was chairman of Selectors, an ex-Richmond and um, South Melbourne player. It was a really, really good, solid year for the club. It was, and the voice, you may recognise it as Simon Beasley, the star of today's show, This Is Your Football Life. When you talk about goal-kicking, when you Google goal-kicking, Simon's face comes up with just a handful of others who have graced the turf as absolute champions of kicking it through the two big sticks. Relays, time for a break and uh, join us uh, after this with more of This Is Your Football Life with Simon Beasley. And while you're at it, check us out on Twitter at Rex Football Life. Goodness me, Simon. Rex Twittering, it's a tweet. It's like Canary, isn't it? No worries. You're Anyhow, <laughs> you're this, is all, this is all for Tobin Brothers Funerals and we're celebrating the football life of Simon Beasley. Dream rises to the top. He is an absolute legend of the game. You're listening to This Is Your Football Life with Rex Hunt for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Celebrating lives. Yes, thank you very much for joining us. Born in 1956, this man's had a great career both on and off the field. His name is Simon Beasley. And today we're celebrating the life and times of Simon Beasley both on and off the field. Uh, Robert Guanawagan uh, got some headlines on a trip away. Were you on that trip? Certainly was. 1985 trip to um, postseason trip to America, mm. and um, yes, no, we had a, a couple of issues on the plane, and um, we arrived in Honolulu, and um, the captain, little fella, came to the back and um, asked the football, um, the the, uh, the the members of the football um, team to stay on board, and. Uh, Qantas then then uh, then alerted us that they wouldn't fly us uh, any further, so we had to get off the plane there. And um, <laughs> so Captain Gronawagen, as he was uh, dubbed, <laughs> caused a few issues. But look, I mean, it was—I um, I don't think it was bad as it was played out. The press made a big thing of it in Australia, and I had a busy day because uh, I think the first one that got hold of me when we got to the hotel was Darren Hinch's producer. <laughs> so I conducted interviews with Hinch. 
I think I had every radio station in Australia trying to get hold of me, and um, then I conducted uh, television interviews with the Willisey brothers because they both worked on one worked on Channel Seven, one worked on Channel Nine. So it was a pretty busy start to the holiday. Anyway, we ended up finding Pan Am. Pan Am were an American airline which flew us from Honolulu up to Los Angeles. Ah, <laughs> oh, gee, it was funny. I tell you what, we got to the, the airport when we were flying up on Pan Am wrecks, and the, yeah. the, the American TV crews had been interviewing the passengers and asking them for they were where they're flying with these wild Australian kangaroos, <laughs> and what did they think <laughs> about it? Oh, gee, it was well, funny. Well, today it's a different story because you line up for two and a half hours at the airport and it's a shame the world's uh, gone that way, but they were the days when, uh, as you say, a little bit of fun could be had and it, uh, no one got hurt. But my goodness me, today you'd probably uh, be looking at the wrong side of some bars. We'd be you? looking on the other. Yeah, they'd lock us up straight away. Tell like, us about uh, when you, like most of us, know exactly when the time has come. You had a fantastic career. You're heading very, very quickly towards 600 goals. But tell us, um, you know, in 1989, when you sat down and you thought to yourself, I've just about had it here. Yeah, look, I had, I'd played about sort of six or eight games, games in 89. Uh, the club were struggling. Um, I spoke to Mick. And look, I had, uh, I had issues with my back. I sort of had issues with my back throughout my career, so I'd, I'd played sort of I'd, I'd played three years of amateur football in Western Australia. I played four years of uh, senior football with Swan Districts and the Waffle, and I was into my um, ninth year at the Bulldogs. And look, I just decided it was time. You know, you, you, you generally know, you generally know. I suppose these days players tend to try and play on us for as long as they can, given the money situation. Um, the, the the money was, I mean, obviously reasonable in the eighties, but I just knew that my time was up and and uh, announced my retirement after a game against Hawthorne, but it was uh, it was the right time to do it. Yeah, you're still the uh, the most celebrated goal kicker at the Western Oval with 575, you know, ahead of Brad Johnson, Chris Grant, Kelvin Templeton, uh, the great Jack Collins. Uh, what a career he had, particularly in that grand final. Uh, but you kick five bags of 10 or more in the VFL. Do you, like a lot of uh, y- your uh, friends think that that is you may never ever see that ever again you know you might see Kennedy kick 11 in the west or Jack Revolt kick uh, you know half a, a dozen or so but is bags of double figures well and truly gone do you think I think I think you'll still see it I think you'll still still see it but I don't th- think you'll see it on a regular basis as we saw in the 80s and the 90s I mean in the 80s and my my era sort of um, Lockett and Dunstall came after me but they were prolific goal kickers of course um, because of the game, the nature of the game, the way it's changed, the full forward tends to work up the field very strongly, like Franklin does, like Rewalt does, but and Kennedy does. But I, I do think that that there will be days when you know teams dominate a game, and the and and then the sort of the centre half forward or full forward will have an opportunity to kick, kick double figures, Rex. But I, I think they'll be few and far between, which is a bit of a pity in a way yeah. because people love all that sort of stuff. They love the they love the full forward sort of kick, you know getting a big bag and. Um, well, it makes the turnstiles click. That's exactly right, mate. They get people there to talk about it, and uh, yeah, yeah, that's the way that way it is. Now you're well known for your betting. You're a bookmaker. You like to have a punt. I used to see you as a punter, and then you thought, goodness me, I'm catching the train, and the bookmakers are catching the uh, Mercedes-driven uh, Benz. <laughs> uh, my goodness me, your punting goes back a long time. I can remember having a bet with Ian Cleanland, the former uh, VFL umpire, on the Brownlow in about 1968. So it's nothing new for players and umpires and that to have a little bit of a bet on the side. But of course, it's all no-no now. It is. It is. It's all so changed dramatically. Um, the whole focus of wagering around the world's gone online, and you've got uh, companies, you know, corporate corporate structures providing the infrastructure there for punters to get set. Uh, it's very much changed from the old days when we really, you know, we were either bet with the TAB, uh, the predominant 
um, betting was taking place on, on horse racing, you either bet with a TAB or an on-course bookmaker. Uh, and so we're seeing the demise of the on-course bookmaker at the moment. They'll, they'll, be, they'll be out of business totally in the next 10 years um, because the, uh, the younger generation are plugged into the apps and they've got their mobile phones and they've got their, their iPads, Rex, and they, they, they wouldn't know what a bookmaker's board looked like. Now, that man uh, sitting opposite you is uh, Mitch Cleary, a fine young man from the footy show and from AFL Live, and he's gone digging a little bit, and he tells me of an extraordinary bet with a big number of zeros that you took from a Collingwood player when they beat Carlton. Uh, tell us about that. My goodness me, how'd you sleep at night? What happened was that uh, Collingwood was, was in about, I reckon it was about 86 or 87, um, and Collingwood... Uh, They'd raised ten thousand for their trip fund, and a, and, and a, um, a colleague of mine, um, who was a Collingwood man, rang me and asked me. They were playing Collingwood. They fancied their they're playing Carlton. Fancied their chances out at Waverley. Um, anyway, they were a slight favourite Collingwood in the game, so they had their ten thousand on to win. I think eight or nine thousand, but uh, Carlton certainly did the right thing and and um, and, and and did the job on them. Uh, so I ended up with a 10 in my skyrocket, Rex. So uh, Collingwood, unfortunately, rather than going to um, uh, the paradise of Newmere or Fiji, I think they end up going down to Werribee for the whole of their postseason trips. So, anyway. I think in those, those particular days, just to put it in context for our listeners, particularly our younger listeners, it was about 25% of the value of a house in metropolitan Melbourne in a <laughs> suburb. They don't have had that much. But anyway, it was, uh, it was very brief. Money, it was mate. funny. It was funny, yeah. Yeah. Tell us about your bookmaking career. Uh, you know, nice to see you. Uh, you know, very conservative. You've had a, you, you'd have a bet at Stony Point, and then you'd wash Oak Bank, and then you'd wash uh, Musselbrook, and then you'd run in and have the the favourite uh, at, uh, at at Randwick, and you'd come back to Flemington, and then you'd have the the trots at Berrawillick. You were just a fanatical punter. When did the time come to say I've got to get on the other side of the ledger and make a quid here? Well, basically, I took out a, cor- a corporate bookmaking license in, in the ACT in the mid '90s. I was a stockbroker. My background's really finance, so I was a stockbroker for 25 years, um, and I took out a corporate bookmaking license in Canberra in the mid '90s. I sold that business. Um, I sold that business into a public structure uh, in the year 2000, around the time the internet boom was taking off, um, and then I got a license in Melbourne in 2002. So uh, we moved on to the rails and. Um, and basically, you know, build up, build up a business pretty quickly, a, a sizable business, um, and taking on the big punters on Melbourne racing, particularly, it was a pretty exciting time actually for on-course bookmakers. But unfortunately, that's that's subsided dramatically in the last three or four years. And Mark Reed was the first bloke out of St Bede's College, I think, to hold a million dollars on a uh, midweek race meeting at Sandown. And uh, my goodness me, now everyone's into it. Absolutely, and I mean uh, the whole landscape's changed dramatically. You see the advertising the corporate bookmakers put through the um, the print media and um, and the electronic media, and there's a hell of a there's a, uh, there, there's a lot of competition out there to try and get the the recreational punter on board via the app, and uh, it's all changed. A bit of a pity in a way because what it basically means, Rex, is the racing industry, which is has really been struggling for numbers in terms of attendances and the like. People don't really go to the races anymore, bar the sort of five or six yeah. week window during the spring, and That's it's it. more a social occasion. Now the punter stays at home, whereby in the old days he'd go to the track and and spar with the the, the you know the the rails bookie or the or the TAB at the track. Now he stays at home because he's got it all on the computer and he's got it all on the television. He doesn't need to go to the races and and that's well, yeah and that's you've, been no good for the industry really. You've done your time. Can we expect to see you back? Well, I got I've got a license back, but I've just I've um I'm I'm, I'm sort of I'm watching what's been happening on course, and I've got a lot of mates who are still in the business and. It's not a strong scene, unfortunately. So 
the way because because of the growth of the corporates and really the younger generation of boarding so betting solely online makes it very hard if you wanted to establish a business an on course business betting betting from the rails. So look, I mean, I've got different balls in the air in terms of uh, what what I'm doing at the moment. So I've got lots of uh, lots of different interests. And um, look, the racing thing it's always close to my heart, but um, whether or not I'm, I come back, uh, it's problematical at this stage. Well, if you'd like to hear extended version of this interview, check out facebook.com forward slash Tobin Brothers Funerals or follow us on Twitter at Rex Footy Life. And we really thank uh, Simon Beasley for being part of the celebration of his football life. We wish you every success with Mary and the children and whatever you do in life, we'll be following it with a great deal of interest and thanks for the many, many thrills over all that time you gave our football people right throughout the nation, Simon. Good on you, Rex. A pleasure to talk to you and, um, and I hope life's good for you. Good on you, Simon Beasley, and join us next week from 7.30am Sunday morning on 1116 SEN. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.